Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Terry Taminen, CEO of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. Welcome to the Experts Only Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. What is your favorite Leonardo DiCaprio movie, and what's your favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? <laughs> well, I'd say uh, for Leo, he has often told me that uh, that perhaps his favorite movie is The Aviator, the story about uh, Howard Hughes. So that caused me to go back and look at it. But I have to say, the one that surprised me the most for, for his talent was Shutter Island. Uh, the way it was promoted, I thought it was sort of a ghost story, and I wasn't really into it. And I finally watched it one night on a plane. And for any of your listeners who haven't seen it, it's a great movie with a lot of twists and turns, uh, and not a ghost story at all. <laughs> and for for Arnold, I mean, boy, that, there's a lot to choose from there, too. But I'd say Kindergarten Cop is one of my favorites. <laughs> Oh, gosh. It's funny you said Shutter Island because my colleague, when we were talking about this question, uh, asked me if I had ever seen it. He said it was his favorite, and I have not seen it yet. So I, I now feel like there's enough consensus that I have to go out and uh, get this movie this weekend. And Mark Ruffalo, who's also a good friend, is uh, is in that one and does a terrific turn as well. So great movie. That's great. That's great. So for the record, mine are The Departed for DiCaprio and Commando uh, from the 80s for Schwarzenegger, uh, two of my favorites. Well, as it happens, both of them are on the set at the moment. Uh, Leo is uh, shooting Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Quentin Tarantino, and uh, Arnold is back in Budapest shooting Terminator 6. <laughs> would would he have ever imagined? No, uh, of course, there's so many twists and turns in his life that one could never imagine that uh, you know if you wrote it as a movie, no one would believe it. Exactly. All right. Uh, so en- enough of the uh, the the joking. Let's let's get into um, Terry Taminen. So where did you grow up? Well, I I like to admit that I really haven't grown up yet. But I spent uh, the first twelve years of my life in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and my family moved to the coast here to Los Angeles, where I am now, uh, for a couple of years, and then on to Australia, where I went to high school, and I came back to uh, to California to go to Cal State Northridge, go Matadors. And how did your experiences, if at all, influence uh, your career, you know, in, in your 20s, but then, uh, of course, ultimately, as you uh, got into environmentalism uh, as a career? You know, it was actually when I was 12 and still here in, in California before we went to Australia, my parents gave me a diving certification course as a birthday present. And I learned to scuba dive off Palos Verdes, um, the peninsula out here, for those of your listeners who might be familiar with it, and uh, just an amazing area of, of kelp forests. And uh, and so I was just mesmerized by the hundreds of species of, of plant and animal life that the kelp forests uh, support. And 10 years later, when I came back to go to college and went out to that favorite dive spot, I was stunned to find it barren. Completely devoid of life, mm. and the rocks were covered with polluted sediment. And I suddenly became aware of the impact of urban runoff and how humans can have such a profound effect on ecosystems. And that made me a lifelong environmentalist. And that eventually led you to 
what I think was your first work as an activist or an environmentalist was with Baykeeper. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was that the first uh, time you actually did it as a career? Yes, that's exactly right. I had been in real estate and a number of other professions and, and as I said, just always felt a passion about environmental issues and would get out in nature whenever I could, including a lot of diving and snorkeling and things like that. I love the ocean. And But like most people, I think I felt that there wasn't anything I could do about it other than send contributions to Sierra Club and Cousteau Society at the time and things like that. Yeah. And then uh, I saw a magazine article about uh, uh, Mike Hurd, who was a San Francisco baykeeper <laughs> at the time. And uh, and I thought to myself, you know what, that's something I could actually do. And, and he was the aquacop, the citizen who went out on the water, in his case, the San Francisco Bay, and he found out who was polluting it and used activism and, and the courts to, to try to stop that pollution and those harms to the bay. And uh, so that got me to go out and raise some money and start the Santa Monica Baykeeper here in Los Angeles. It's interesting you say that. The thing that got my career going in environmentalism was a Rolling Stone article by Bobby Kennedy Jr., about Riverkeeper, Waterkeeper, Baykeeper, all these different organizations. So it spurred me in the same exact way that uh, that article spurred you. For our listeners' benefit, Terry and I know each other through uh, Waterkeeper Alliance. We didn't actually cross over, but we um, we both were. Terry was a leader and founder of Waterkeeper Alliance, and I eventually came to it later, um, a couple of years after it had started. So that's our connection. Going back to your experience at, at Santa Monica Baykeeper, what were you focused on? At that point, what were the issues that were important to Baykeeper? Well, interestingly, right after we started it, we had an 800 number hotline for people to call in tips about things that might pollute the bay. Our first tip was about um, uh, a program, a contractor who was working for University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, and uh, for their hospital. He took away human remains from the from the hospital and uh, was supposed to take them to a, an incinerator. Uh, and uh, instead, he was dumping them in the bay. And uh, <laughs> so we we busted that whole thing. And uh, the guy actually went to jail. So we started out on on something that was criminal. Uh, but then we started working on much bigger cases, including. Caltrans, our State Department of Transportation that operates thousands of miles of uh, freeways and, and storm drains and had never made any effort to protect what was coming off of those roadways, all the oil and grease and tire wear and tear and all that sort of thing, from getting into the bay into the storm, through the storm drain. And that was illegal. So we got our evidence and took them to court. And after a three-week uh, trial in federal court, we won a permanent injunction and They've now cleaned that up uh, by about 90%. And then the other big case, right before I left uh, the Baykeeper and turned it over to our mutual friend Steve Fleshley, was uh, against the city of L.A. for 6,500 miles of leaking sewer pipes. And uh, happy to say that that, too, after our, our litigation, uh, has, uh, has reduced spills by over 80%. That's amazing. So the work that you did at Baykeeper was very focused on, on local uh, locally in Los Angeles, um, you then take, um, uh, you start working at Environment Now, um, starting to actually fund some of these these types of organizations. That's right. In fact, that was why I moved over to the Foundation Environment Now, because uh, the late Frank Wells, who was its founder, uh, gave 
funding for the startup of the Santa Monica Baykeeper and liked that model, that activist model that was using citizen enforcement and on the ground, uh, you know, evidence gathering and so on. And uh, so while I was Santa Monica Baykeeper, uh, he asked me to try to help uh, his hometown of San Diego to start up a program, which we did. And then uh, up the coast in Santa Barbara and Ventura, there were there was a need, and we found people who were willing to start up programs there with a little help from the foundation. So uh, at the point where they needed someone to run the foundation, they said, look, why don't you come in here and see the Johnny Appleseed of keepers both uh, up and down the coast, but also another area that Environment Now cared deeply about was our land, uh, public lands and forests. So we started the Sequoia Forest Keeper and, uh, and used that same model in other ecosystems. So you, you carve out at this point, you know, spending over a decade as one of the leaders of the environmental movement, certainly in California uh, and, and nationally. And in 2003, uh, you are introduced to a startup politician named Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, and join his team at the Cal, as the head of the Cal EPA initially and then eventually as a cabinet sec- secretary. How did that actually come to pass? Well, um, of course, uh, through our mutual friend Bobby Kennedy, when Arnold decided to run for governor and surprised everyone, including his wife, that night that he announced <laughs> on The Tonight Show to run for governor in front of the entire country, that, after that day, he was on the East Coast, and he was with uh, his wife, Maria Shriver, and they were at the Kennedy compound back east, and uh, Bobby said, look, uh, I know that you're an environmentalist, but the rest of the state doesn't, and if you want to be a governor in California, especially as a Republican, you have to campaign on that. And Arnold said, well, look, I, I mean, I care deeply about these issues, so, as you know, especially being a bodybuilder, he would... He first came to California in '68. He talks about how the beaches uh, had, you know, so much trash on them and uh, syringes and all kinds of terrible trash, and the air was so hard that as an athlete, you know, you, you couldn't breathe it many days, and eyes would sting and lungs would burn and so forth. And so he always wanted to do something about that. He realized that there was an opportunity as governor to do that, but he didn't know the policy. So Bobby suggested that uh, that he get in touch with me and that we would uh, work together to try to develop some policies he could campaign on. And that's how we started. And then he wins. And then you become the head of the Cal EPA. What was that experience like going from the activist role, advocate, uh, nonprofit NGO, uh, to being part of the machine and a policymaker? Well, you know, it's one of those moments in life when you put up or shut up. Um, you know, I'm a Democrat who had campaigned for Al Gore and, you know, felt the sting of him winning the popular vote but losing the presidency sure. and what that meant to the environment, amongst other things. And so, you know, here it is just three years later, and my friends are saying, why are you helping this Republican? Remember, George mm-hmm. Bush was the president at that time, at least up until then, the worst environmental president we had ever had. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like I was turning turning my back on, on my values. And I said to these people, look, don't we want a Republican to say the things about the environment and environmental protection that we're all saying, and uh, especially against the backdrop of Bush? And don't worry, he's not going to win the election. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the many times I was wrong. But of course, today, after the election, I went into Arnold's office and I said, well, congratulations, Governor. I don't think you have any idea what you've bitten off here, but at least you have a great environmental action plan that we campaigned on. Sure. Uh, to him. And he said, no, I don't. You do. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's when I realized, okay, I guess I've got to go into government with him and actually do this. So, yeah, I, my first day uh, at the Cal EPA building, which in uh, Sacramento is a 25-story, it's the first uh, lead platinum high-rise high rise in, in America, so great building. Uh, the first day I got there, the employees, knowing that I do other things, uh, as well as polluters, uh, sued, you know, like Caltrans and so forth, yeah. the state agency, so if I was a friend or a foe, and again, <laughs> coming in as a Republican and all that sort of thing, they didn't know if I was going to be helpful or hurtful, so uh, the 3,500 employees of Cal EPA circulated an a email amongst themselves saying uh, the, the plaza in front of that building, uh, they were going to rename it Taminan Square, and they were saying, which side of the tanks are you going to line up on? <laughs> Uh, to Tiananmen Square, of course, yep. and uh, and went over my my future colleagues and show them that this environmental action plan that we campaigned on was for real, and so we started and uh, managed to get a lot done. Even in that first year, we we launched the, the hydrogen highway, the million solar roof initiative, the uh, effort to save uh, uh, enormous swaths of land north of Los Angeles. Uh, an area called Cone Ranch, uh, marine protected areas, and just a, a wide variety of things. We, we got uh, signed into law the Sierra Nevada Conservancy, which protects millions of acres of the Sierra Nevada mountains. So a lot of things that are on that original checklist from November of 2003, we actually got done in that next legislative year. And people started to believe, wow, you know, Arnold's the real deal. I saw an interview that you were a presentation that you did where um, you comment that the goals that yourself and the governor had were more ambitious than any sane politician would propose. And I'm interested to know why you guys launched with such ambitious efforts, let alone that it was on the back of a Republican who was not a familiar face to environmentalists. Well, you know, it's interesting when we were first, when I first helped him campaign, uh, and, and then even when we first got into office, there was a tension between those big goals and especially the Republican administrators around Arnold, who all said, look, it's great to have these ideas in mind, but you should never set big goals like this publicly, because if you fall short, the voters will punish you, your opponents will punish you, and so forth. And and uh, so, you know, you can say, look, yeah, we want more solar, but don't say you're going to get a million solar roofs in, you know, five years and that yeah. sort of thing. And so Arnold said, wait a minute, look, if I, as a kid in Austria, said, you know, I'm going to go to the gym and I'll see what happens, uh, as opposed to setting a goal of being the world bodybuilding champion by the time I'm 20. He said, if I had just done the former and not the latter, I'd still be sitting in Austria, probably coal mining. And and, you know, he, and he said, I'd rather set a bold goal and only hit 75% of it mm-hmm. than a puny goal or, uh, or no goal and, uh, and, you know, obviously not do even that much. And, of course, then when it's just like whether he set his goal to be uh, the champion bodybuilder or governor of California or be the highest paid action star in Hollywood, you know, it turns out he actually did all those things. Yeah. And so that's the other thing is that when you realize you're dealing with someone like that, uh, he knows how to set big goals, but actually how to accomplish them. So, yeah, we had some fights internally, and uh, especially in 2005 when I drafted his executive 
climate change, which led to our, our Global Warming Solutions Act. Uh, that was another one that on the world stage, a lot of the people around him were, were suggesting caution, and he said, absolutely not. And if you go back and listen to his speech on that day when, when he signed the executive order, he said, you know, the, uh, the science is in, the debate is over, and the time for action is now. And it's really, it was heartwarming that uh, at that point, two years later, when uh, President Obama was elected, that he actually uh, repeated those very words when he talked about what he wanted to do on climate change as president. Is it frustrating that you're, we're now still having debates over this? You know, I, I don't actually think there are debates. There's the false equivalency where, you know, reporters will say, here's what's happening on climate change, and then, oh, but some skeptics say blah, blah, blah. But even that has, has really uh, gone, I'd say, more silent. If you look at the latest IPCC report that came out a couple weeks ago with the very dire warnings about how we're really running out of time now and how so many more impacts of climate change are, are visible today, you realize that if you look at the reporting on that, there were far fewer news outlets that gave even a, a line or a paragraph to any skeptic saying, oh, this isn't happening, or maybe it's not man-made, or whatever. So I do think a lot of that has dissipated. Of course, it hasn't at Fox News and the other places that are paid by the Koch brothers and, and others to uh, to continue to pretend to deny it. But, uh, but, but I do st- think we There's still that. politicians, though, who, while, while the, the science is in and not disputed, it's frustrating to see a lot of politicians still clinging on to the opposite view. Well, it is. And look, even President Bush, toward the end of his administration, admitted that climate change was at least in part man-made and that we'd have to do something about it. But he, he switched the Republican argument from pure denial to, uh, but, you know, we need to take our time because we don't want to, you know, fall into a recession or, or harm the economy. And that was always some of the backdrop of the of the argument uh, on the right. And I'd say that that's kind of where these politicians today have gone and said, you know, we can't lose jobs in the coal mining industry. We can't lose these jobs or those jobs. Of course, they ignore how many more jobs are, are created in sustainable technologies and, and energy efficiency and renewable energy and so on and so forth. They ignore the evidence that California's economy uh, was quite strong during the recession compared to the rest of the country, and that even our building sector, our home building sector and so forth, thrived at least partially because of our million solar roofs initiative where electricians and roofers and workers who otherwise would have been out of business, out of jobs, were able to uh, to respond to the big demand for solar. And, you know, and obviously our economy grew and continues to do very well despite having higher prices for fuel because we've got clean fuel standards and uh, higher prices for electricity uh, because we've mandated and incentivized renewables. But at the same time, we've incentivized energy efficiency measures, which California is now 40% more energy efficient than the rest of the country. So our electric bills are actually lower than the rest of the country, even though we pay more per mm. kilowatt. So again, it's a, it's a blended strategy that in, in the end, saves money, creates jobs, and reduces pollution. And so, you know, there's just no more fig leaps for these uh, naysayers to hide behind. 
but they do so because if you've read Dark Money by Jane Meyer, you, you realize that the, they're literally being paid to say these things. Yeah. When you started with the Million Solar Roofs Initiative, at that point, solar had not been across the landscape of California like it is today. Describe for us that 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 what the landscape was like in 04, 05, fast forward to where we've come in California, especially, which continues to be the leader in clean energy. Well, so uh, two data points. One is that um, when we started this, we finally got it actually enacted into law in the first subsidies and the program started in 2006. And at that time, uh, the installed cost of solar was $4 a watt. And today, it's about a dollar a watt. So uh, so in just 12 years, it, the, the program, and, you know, this is not solely because of what we did in California, but because we're such a big market, I, I say we can claim a good part of the credit, yeah. that uh, the incentives were designed to front load. So uh, in, in 2006, if you put solar on your rooftop, you could get half of it paid for by the state. Hmm. And then if you waited a year, you'd only get 40% paid for it. If you waited another year, it was 30%. The point was to try to incentivize more installers, more people to put it on their rooftop. And it did. And it also inspired uh, companies like Solar City to come up with novel financing methods for, you know, whatever you do have to pay for it, uh, where in some cases it's even free. You just agree to buy the electricity off your roof and things like that. So it really a tremendous amount of innovation, including uh, a lot of, like I said, in the recession, uh, building trades that were that were otherwise going out of business, able to compete, and that kept down the cost of the installation itself, because people focus a lot on the cost of solar panels, but the truth is, most of the cost of something that goes on a rooftop is what's called the balance of system, which means the frame and the wires and, and the, you know, bolts to the roof and all those kinds of things. It's not just the solar panels. Um, the converter that converts the DC electricity from the roof into AC, etc. So that is what came down dramatically and uh, and really jump-started this industry around the, the country and the world. Uh, but the other data point I, I want to mention is that uh, we set the goal of a million roofs of actually being you know solarized. And I was just talking to the Energy Commission the other day, and in January there will be a formal announcement and a ribbon cutting of the one million solar roof in California. Well, congratulations that uh, it, it came to pass. It did indeed, and and uh, I don't have memorized how many megawatts that is, but it's a significant contributor. That's amazing. Uh, a couple of years ago, one of our two nuclear power plants went offline because it was leaking, and after lawsuits, they Utility agreed to retire it permanently, but that's a thousand megawatts. That's a big, big system uh, for the state that went offline. And because of energy efficiency and because of all the new renewables that were coming online, uh, the state realized it didn't actually need that dirty nuclear power plant. So, uh, and, and we're about to phase out the other one in a couple of years, Diablo Canyon. So we no longer have to have the Fukushima and Chernobyl type risks of having nuclear in our backyard. So is clean energy possible to power the entire the entire grid? Absolutely. I mean, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation was one of the founders and supporters of something called the Solutions Project out of Stanford. Uh, Mark, Professor Mark Jacobson and uh, his team started several years ago doing research state by state, and now they've done it country by country, to show what it would take to power that region, state, or country 100% renewable and by when. And 
they looked at economics, technical feasibility, you know, all the different factors, and they concluded that uh, certainly every state in America could do it uh, by mid-century at the latest. And the proof of concept uh, that we've been doing here in California with more and more renewables, more and more energy efficiency, which of course makes it easier to reach those goals if you're 40% more energy efficient, that uh, it makes it possible for legislators, when we came in, the law said that California would have to get 20% of its electricity from renewables by 2017. And remember, we came into office in 2003. Mm -hmm. And we were able to accelerate that to 20% by 2010. And we hit that goal. And the legislature then said, all right, let's set a 50% target by 2020. And we're now on the path to hit that goal. So Mm -hmm. as you may know, uh, Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown, just signed the law a couple of weeks ago that will put California on a path to 100% renewable energy by 2045. And uh, we have to be at 60% by 2030, at which point uh, the legislature will determine, uh, you know, it's clear we can hit that goal because, like I said, we're on the path to 50%, so 60 won't be that hard. And then the legislature can do what it has to to get the last 40%. But bottom line is it's now the law of the land and the seventh largest economy on the planet that uh, within most of our lifetimes, we will be 100% renewable energy powered. So it can happen anywhere. It's amazing. It's also Hawaii, which obviously is not as large of an economy, has 100% renewable uh, target. Um, I think those are the only two states to date. Is that something, it's something that needs to happen on the national level and something that needs to happen on the global level. But getting California to do it and then getting the getting it to spread nationally is a big lift. Well, it, it is a big lift, but we've been doing it in increments. In other words, when we came into office in 2003 and we accelerated that renewable portfolio standard, as it's called, uh, to, to be a little bit more ambitious, uh, if we had then said, oh, look, by mid-century, we're going to be 100% renewable energy powered, given the technology and the economics of renewables at the time, we would have been laughed at yeah. and, and, you know, all crazy, and, and it would have been crazy. But it's all of these incremental steps that I've mentioned uh, on, on you know, developing more renewables so that they become less expensive and more ubiquitous and easier to adapt to the grid, uh, as well as uh, coming up with baseline solutions, meaning, in other words, you know, solar only shines certain parts of the day, so you either need batteries or some other method of storage if you're going to rely on solar alone. And that's why, you know, you blend it with wind, which tends to blow at night, and blend it with geothermal, which can be baseload, meaning it works 24-7. And, you know, even biomass and other, uh, you know, biological materials that can be gasified in a clean way, not burned. Uh, So so when you really blend all of those things together, it's possible to to have a very economically viable and locally sourced uh, method of, of powering your economy. And this is actually happening, this transition from the utility-based model to something that's a little more local, more distributed, and the clean energy landscape and economy is really making this, this transition. We're, we're like right in the middle of it. Like you said, there's technologies that, like storage that two years ago weren't viable, and now we're seeing actual installations and, and how that's going to impact it. So it's happening, but it's all, all toward, with an eye towards addressing climate change. So turning back to climate change, how, when was this first on your radar as something that 
um, was serious and needed to be addressed? Uh, you know, I, I commissioned the first paper of research on this for Environment Now when I was there in uh, the late 1990s to, I mean, it was already on my radar, but it was like, all right, what should a foundation of our size and this California focus be thinking about in terms of climate change? And we had a professor from UCLA kind of write us an overview of the status of uh, climate science at that time. And then, you know, what were some of the things that the foundation might do to, to support uh, policy and, and advancing of these technologies and so on. Uh, and then, of course, I, I literally took that paper with me when I went into government in 2003. And if you look back at that environmental action plan that we wrote uh, for Schwarzenegger and that he campaigned on, there were a lot of these very ambitious goals, as you mentioned earlier, for preserving land and the ocean and uh, solar roofs and a hydrogen highway and all kinds of things for electric vehicles, and you name it. And the only thing in there that does not have a specific goal is climate change, because at the time when we sat down and worked on that plan, I said to Arnold, you know, the state just doesn't have a very good inventory of its greenhouse gases. So at the time, the Kyoto Protocol was the thing that countries were trying to uh, to comply with. And I said, if you know, we're the, at that time, fifth or sixth largest economy on the planet. If we were a, a country, we'd have to abide by the Kyoto Protocol. And, and part of that is having a good inventory so you know how to address which sectors are going to have to reduce emissions first and how you're going to do it. And so I said, it's hard to set a goal. So what we did in the action plan was it said that if elected, Schwarzenegger would direct his secretary of the California EPA to get that inventory and come up with a plan uh, that would make us compliant with, uh, with the Kyoto Protocol. And of course, little did I know when I put that sentence in the plan that I would be the one that would have to draft that plan. So, <laughs> When I got into office, I realized I had 3,500 employees, and none of them were climate scientists. And uh, and so I turned to UC Berkeley and many of my friends in the nonprofit world and said, look, I need your help. And so we got the Energy Foundation to jump on board. And within, you know, six, eight months, we had an analysis of, you know, what we knew about our emissions, what we still had to learn, and a, a viable plan to, to make us, a, in essence, a Kyoto-compliant uh, country. So California takes a lot of leadership on it, but it's obviously a global matter. How much progress have we made on climate change since then? The short answer is not enough. And that's, of course, one of the reasons that this election is so important, every election is important, because, you know, Trump obviously is now an even worse environmental president than, uh, than Bush was, and he was pretty bad. But uh, I mean, the only difference is that he's open about his hostility to climate change solutions yeah. and anything the environment. Bush tried to mask it with programs like the Clean Skies Initiative and the Healthy Forests Initiative, both of which meant the exact opposite. But uh, but in any event, Trump uh, obviously is is being stalled in the courts in a lot of the things he wants to do. And, you know, if he's a one-term president, we can survive this. But the problem is we don't have the time to waste. We need every president, every governor, every city to make progress on these climate solutions if we're going to avoid the worst consequences that are, are forecast. And I often mention to people, if you really want to learn quickly about climate change, take, you know, three hours and watch two movies. One is Inconvenient Truth, which Al Gore did, what, a dozen years ago or so. Sure. And then Before the Flood, which Leo did 
two years ago. And those two bookend each other because the inconvenient truth with Al Gore and his charts of scientists predicted what was going to happen. And then Leo, 10 years later, goes around the world and actually shows you that everything Al warned us about is happening, but faster. And that's, of course, what this latest IPCC report also tells us. So we just don't have the luxury of time to delay and just defend against the idiots like Trump and, and his fossil fuel cronies in Congress. We absolutely have got to push to make progress, and that's why, at least in this country, um, where Governor Brown just held his climate summit in San Francisco and showed that California and so many cities and other states are making progress regardless of what our federal government does. And that's really that's really the key. We we just have got to keep this moving forward. Yet we've pulled we pulled out or announced that we're pulling out of the Paris Agreement as a country, one of what, two or three countries that are not uh, participating in it? Well, actually, at the time, Syria was the only other country that had uh, not ratified that. And uh, just before last year's uh, Conference of the Parties or COP, they even Syria joined in. So the United States is now the only country on Earth that is, uh, that is not part of this, uh, of this agreement. Now, we technically still are, because under the terms of the agreement, uh, Trump actually can't pull us out, but, but obviously he can stop any progress on, on uh, the country, at least at the national level, like, for example, reversing Obama's clean power plan and, and trying to incentivize coal and, of course, just even being an idiot in, in terms of, like, at last year's COP, sending a delegation that bragged about America's coal at, the, at a climate summit, mm. I mean. So, so unfortunately, you know, as I say, we, we have a clown for a president that just doesn't understand the seriousness of this stuff. And also, I mean, you know, Leo and I met with him right after he was elected and before he was inaugurated. We laid out a detailed plan for him, much like we did for Arnold. We hoped he would be an Arnold-type Republican. And we said, look, you campaigned on, you know, liking fracking and coal and all that sort of thing. But here are ways that you could do things that would be good for the economy and good for the environment. So, for example, 26 million streetlights in America that haven't been replaced with LEDs, your Department of Energy could could do a loan guarantee program. So it would be private money. Private investors would make money, invest the money in the cities to replace all of their streetlights. And it would be about a five-year payback of, based on the efficiency, the energy efficiency, 70% of the energy would be saved, 70% of the emissions would be reduced from power production. Uh, you'd have jobs on almost every street. People would see that you're doing this. And, uh, and it would be great for the economy, but it would also be very good for the environment. And he pointed to the LED lights and the ceiling of his Trump Tower office and to the programmable thermostat on the wall. And he said, yeah, I, I understand energy efficiency. That's a great one. I like that. Let's do that. Of course, he didn't, and and the rhetoric coming out of his administration is the exact opposite, and Rick Perry at the Energy Department has no interest in these things. Um, And we showed him a bunch of other things like this, where it could be good for the environment and good for the economy. And uh, again, just because of his uh, his bias and and his fossil fuel-paid cronies, uh, they're going in the opposite direction uh, at a time when, when you know they're basically defending the horse and buggy against motorized transportation. Can there be real progress on a global solution in the absence of American leadership? Temporarily, there can be because, uh, like I said, at least the United States is likely to be 
compliant with the Paris Agreement or close to it, thanks to the 33 states that have renewable energy uh, goals, like California does, to the, the numerous states that are actually doing cap-and-trade programs. You know, there's 10 in the Northeast under what's called REGI. There's California here in the West partnering with Canadian provinces and now lining up with the Chinese provinces. There's, of course, the, uh, the European Union trading system, and, and so the North America one will, will partner with China and the European Union at some point. So the next few years, you'll have about a third of the world's economy under a price on carbon, and that makes it possible for more states to join. So, you know, look, we're going to be part of this global movement and hopefully get through the nightmare of Trump. Again, it just delays. First of all, the inevitable evolution of our energy system, like I said, much like trying to support horses and buggies against motorized transit yep. um, or uh, you know carrier pigeons uh, compared to the telephone. So it's going to happen anyway, not just for climate change reasons, but we just don't have the time to waste by, by delaying. But I, but I am confident that at least if, if, if Trump is a one-term president, the United States is going to be part of the solution uh, in spite of him. And... The, the urgency is particularly, has been particularly pronounced with the recent IPCC report. I read a report uh, from the National Academy of Sciences sort of saying that we, we actually have to start thinking about how we suck carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, now's the moment, right? Well, yes. And, you know, it's like Winston Churchill said about Americans that we always do the right thing, but only after trying everything else first. <laughs> <laughs> and so it is uh, with the world when it comes to climate change. We've waited until the 11th and a half hour. You know, we're obviously a little too late for many people. I mean, when people ask me, when will we reach that tipping point and it's too late, the answer is it already is too late for people in Bangladesh who, uh, while we were mourning 38 people dead in Houston from uh, Hurricane Harvey, there were 1,200 who died in Bangladesh from unprecedented storms and 40 million who were displaced from their homes. I mean, we just don't see this reported in the United States very much. But while we were mourning victims of Hurricane Michael recently and looking at the terrible devastation in Mexico Beach and places like that in the, in the Florida Panhandle, uh, similar and greater storms were happening in Asia. And, and again, more people displaced and, and dying. So it's already too late for many. But when, in terms of reaching that tipping point for the rest of us, we have to just ramp up the level of effort and uh, and try to turn this around before the feedback loops become too great to overcome. So, you know, we know that the ice caps are melting. If the permafrost in uh, the Arctic uh, melts, that's going to release methane that's been trapped for millennia, and that's going to accelerate global warming even if we stopped our emissions. That's just going to be then natural emissions. Uh, this, of course, should remain locked in ice, but will be released and will be, you know, uh, feedback loops that we can't stop. And the Paris Agreement was just a piece of the puzzle. It wasn't actually a, enough. So I asked, are we thinking big enough as a society in light of the challenge we face? Well, I'd say we're thinking big enough, but not fast enough. So the Paris Agreement said, look, we've, we've got to stop warming at no more than two degrees and preferably 1.5. So that was the right level of ambition, the right target to set. But then when you added up what all the countries said they would do, it would keep warming to about three degrees centigrade. So it was about half 
of what we actually need to do. So, you know, for the first time, and that was COP21, meaning 21 years of those annual conference of the party uh, meetings, took 21 years to get that agreement. So much as people have criticized the fact that it wasn't ambitious enough and that it's voluntary, it was actually really epic because here you had all the world's countries coming together and saying, all right, this is what we can do, and we can probably do more. I mean, that's where the volunteer part comes in, is that these were voluntary uh, reductions, and everyone knows that most countries can do more um, and, and probably will. So getting at least half off the table, so to speak, with those commitments was big, and setting the targets uh, was big. Now, again, we're kind of running out of time, and we do have to fill in the other half, that uh, those countries haven't yet identified. But some of that, again, I think is going to happen on the natural because it just is cheaper to install LED lights instead of inefficient ones. It's, it's cheaper to use fuel-efficient vehicles and alternative uh, transportation and so on uh, than business as usual. It's, it's better to have distributed energy that is free from the sun or the wind uh, than it is to dig up fossil fuels and march an army around the globe to kill people for a barrel of oil. So, so this is a transition that's going to happen. So the thing is not just the getting the other half that was missing in the Paris Agreement. It's getting us to accelerate that progress. So with the remaining two, two minutes or so we have here, uh, as you look back at your own career over the, the last number of decades, two decades in, of in environmentalism in one way or another, have you personally made the dent that you had hoped? You know, as a, as a personal footprint, I would say yes. My wife and I drive a hydrogen fuel cell electric car, which we were able to uh, have because of the policy work that uh, Arnold and I did in, in government uh, and accelerating that transition. We uh, live in a solar-powered, solar-water-heated home, which, again, is possible because of modern technology and affordable because of that and saves us money. Uh, you know, we grow vegetables in our own garden. I mean, we try to live as as low carbon footprint walk the walk and, and yeah and uh and then you know look in terms of my career hey i've worked for two very uh successful actors i i went to school to study acting actually in my misspent youth and i i wish i had stuck with that but today <laughs> i'd be hopefully as successful as they are in the movies and could fund a lot of this work myself and uh but i but i'm very glad to be working Still working with Arnold in the R20, recent climate action nonprofit that he started to work on this with states and provinces all over the world, and of course with Leonardo DiCaprio at the foundation, and using his incredible voice to to get these messages out to the world. It's amazing they didn't give you any uh, gigs in some of their movies. <laughs> well, I was usually too busy and didn't ask. So, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe in a few years, if uh, if I can take a little time off. Uh, the last question I have, are you optimistic for the future? Will climate change be tackled? I am, but again, I'm, I temper that with uh, sadness that we didn't act sooner because, as I mentioned, uh, it's already too late for many people, and uh, we see islands disappearing. We see greater storms. That, that People that aren't as resilient as we are in America that don't have a FEMA, that don't have the Red Cross rushing in with you know blankets and clean water and a place to, to move to. So I, I really feel badly that we haven't been more successful sooner. Uh, but I'm optimistic for certainly America and uh, uh, much of the rest of the world that we can do this. Not only. 
only because it's obviously urgent and necessary for our environment and our future on this planet, but because it's just good economics, and that seems to be what drives the people that are less interested in, in the environment. On that positive note, Terry Taminen, environmental legend and currently CEO of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, thank you so much for joining the Experts Only podcast. Been my pleasure. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.